You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 250th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to episode number 250. You know, it seems like just yesterday (laughs) that we were sitting down in our kitchen to record the very first episode of the podcast. So it's really kind of hard to believe that this is the 250th show. And of course, if you add on some bonus episodes and the members episodes, then we're actually up to well over 300 shows all about the Civil War. And we're only just now finishing up with 1862 and ready to launch into 1863. So that means we still have 1863, 64, 65, and Reconstruction to go. When some of you sent in questions for this show, you said things like, Here's to another 250, or best wishes for the next 250. Uh, And at the pace we're going, I guess it's actually not out of the realm of possibility that this thing will hit 500 episodes before we're finished, which is kind of crazy to think about. You know, for a while after we first started the podcast, we would have people every so often asking us how long we thought it would take us to get through it. But we both think it's kind of funny that no one really asks us that anymore. I guess y'all just figure that we'll finish it when we finish it. As we said before, we really didn't know what all we were getting into when we first decided to start this project. Back then, we thought it maybe would take us uh, three years to do the podcast. And... You know, perhaps we could have done it in that time frame, but we pretty quickly decided that if we were going to do a Civil War podcast, then we were going to do the Civil War podcast that we ourselves would want to listen to. And that meant not rushing through it, but taking our time. And the good news is that that seems to have worked, because after all this time, not only are Rich and I still excited about the podcast and about continuing to tell this amazing story, But quite a lot of y'all have stuck with us along this journey and are still excited about it, too. In fact, after all this time, two things that continue to put smiles on our faces is to hear from folks who have just discovered the podcast and think it's wonderful, and then also hear from people who've been listening a long time and are still enjoying it. And we really can't tell you how much we appreciate that kind of feedback. 
because that makes us kind of feel that even after all this time, the podcast is still alive and growing. And it makes the two of us feel that we're part of something special. And that helps us stay motivated to keep moving forward with the show. So all of that's to say, thanks for listening. And Tracy and I hope you guys enjoy this special 250th episode of the podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Please know how much Rich and I appreciate you. So by now, you all probably know that we wanted to do something special for our 250th episode, and what we decided on was to have you guys send in questions that we would answer. We weren't sure how many questions we'd get. Uh, we just hoped we'd get enough to do a whole show. But you folks sent in so many questions, it'd probably take us three or four shows to get through them all. So thanks for that. And if we don't use your question, then sorry, but don't worry. You'll still be entered into the drawing for the Atlas. Okay, a question that more than one of you sent in is some variation of how many hours do you put into researching, writing, and recording each episode? Well, actually, we get asked that question quite a bit, and the answer we've come up with is that if you include the reading and research, the writing, going through the script once together, the magic <laughs> that happens <laughs> when we sit down to record it, and then the editing to make it halfway presentable, uh, we probably have on average between 15 and 20 hours invested in each episode. Wow. Yeah, wow. Another question we got from more than one of you is some variation of when and how did your interest in the Civil War begin? Well, for me, it was when Rich said, hey, let's do a podcast about the Civil War. All right. Uh, doing the podcast was my idea. But as we've told some of you, uh, after our wedding, as we were driving from Fayetteville, Arkansas to Blowing Rock, North Carolina for our honeymoon, we listened to a book on tape in the car. And it was The Killer Angels by Michael Shira. Uh So in a way, the Civil War has been a part of our marriage from the very beginning. So our mutual interest in the Civil War may have started on our honeymoon, but like a lot of people growing up in the South, I first learned about the Civil War through what I was taught in school as a kid, which I don't remember being particularly skewed to a Confederate viewpoint, maybe because I grew up in a city and a college town in Fayetteville. But then, as an adult, I have to admit my interest and knowledge have really been because of Rich's passion for it. Uh, and for me, I've always been interested in history, especially military history, ever since I was a little kid, uh, particularly World War II and the Civil War. And speaking of the Second World War, some of you know, well, maybe very few of you, since we never actually mentioned it here on the Civil War podcast, but a couple of years ago now, we also did a show on World War II. Uh, we did about two dozen or so episodes going through the background to the war and Hitler's rise to power and taking it up to the German invasion of Poland. But then we realized that we just didn't have the time or energy to do two in-depth history podcasts at the same time. So we laid that project aside so we could stay focused on the Civil War. 
but we still hope to return to the World War II podcast someday. Uh, both of my grandfathers fought in the war, one in Europe and one in the Pacific. And some of you know that my dad is a transplanted Englishman. He came over here to the States for university and never left. But during the Second World War, my granddad John was a British war correspondent. And that actually answers another question more than one of you sent in, and that's what we plan on doing after we finish up with the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, so although by that time it might be our retirement project, right now our answer is that we'd like to go back to that World War II podcast that we started and finish it. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Most of you can probably guess why I'm going to let Rich answer this question. But Kent S. asked, who was worse, Little Mac or John B. Floyd? I know you aren't fond of either, but I'm curious who was the worst. Hmm, great question, Kent. Well, while John B. Floyd was a completely useless bastard... Rich, <laughs> come on. Okay. Um... While Floyd was completely useless, um, Little Mac, while he was absolute rubbish as a field general, did have his uses as an organizer and trainer. Uh, having said that, though, based on level of damage done to each cause, I think McClellan has to get the top spot, since even setting aside the political poison that surrounded him, Militarily speaking, during the Peninsula Campaign, he fumbled away the chance to capture Richmond in 1862. Then, during Second Manassas, he undermined John Pope's chances against Lee. And then he dropped the ball at Antietam when he had the Confederates cornered at Sharpsburg with their backs against the Potomac River. I mean, that's three strikes. Three major strikes. A not unrelated question then, which was sent in by Nicholas R., is 
What do you think was the worst managed campaign, battle, or operation you have covered so far? And our answer is McClellan's performance during the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days Battles. While on the offensive, he was overly cautious and repeatedly missed opportunities to strike a potentially decisive blow. And then once Robert E. Lee attacked, Little Mac was clearly in over his head and unable to manage the army on the defensive. And his personal conduct was often downright cowardly as he absented himself from the battlefield. Well, now that we've got in our knocks against Little Mac, which is always satisfying, uh, that leads us nicely to another question that more than one of you asked, which is some variation of, will you rank the top generals, both Union and Confederate? Uh, no surprise, but we think Grant and Lee were the top two generals of the Civil War, in that order. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant was responsible for the capture of three enemy armies during the war at Fort Donelson, at Vicksburg, and at Appomattox. And we don't think his Vicksburg campaign has any equal in the Civil War. Now, Grant wasn't perfect. He made mistakes, especially tactically. But at both the strategic and operational levels, he was the best general of the war. Robert E. Lee also made mistakes, but he had a sure grasp of strategy and was aggressive enough for anyone's taste. For the first part of his tenure at the head of the Army of Northern Virginia, he was fortunate to go up against flawed Union commanders in McClellan, Pope, Burnside, and Hooker. That opens the door to the age-old question, does A look good because B was bad, or does B look bad because A was good? <laughs> okay. Um, Lee's greatest triumph at Chancellorsville was arguably due to equal parts, audacity, and luck. But Napoleon might argue those are the two most important things a general needs to win a battle. At any rate, when all is said and done, Lee was the only general officer in the Confederacy that the South produced who proved capable of successful independent large army command. And without him, the Confederacy wouldn't have lasted four years. Our next two choices probably also won't, won't be surprising. They are William Tecumseh Sherman and Stonewall Jackson. Sherman was a mediocre tactician and an average strategist, but he had one of the best logistical minds of the war, and perhaps the keenest understanding by any general of the connection between military operations and hard war policies. And his march through Georgia and the Carolinas also shows he had the requisite nerve for independent, unsupported movements deep in enemy territory. As for Stonewall Jackson, even if he'd never accomplished anything beyond his Valley Campaign of 1862, he'd still deserve a place on this list. But between Port Republic and Chancellorsville, Jackson developed into the Confederacy's finest practitioner of maneuver warfare, though his uneven grasp of tactics and prickly personality suggest he wouldn't have fared so well at the head of a major army. And after those four, also on our list are George Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. For the Union, there was also Philip Sheridan, and then for the Confederacy, Thomas Claiborne and John B. Gordon displayed impressive qualities as leaders of men and battlefield commanders as respectively division and corps commanders. 
And then two generals we think deserve honorable mentions are the Confederacy's Chief of Ordnance, Josiah Gorgas, and the Union's Quartermaster General, Montgomery C. Miggs. Both were talented officers whose contributions were vital to their armies. Then a couple of you ask about our favorite Civil War battlefield, or what we think the best battlefield is to visit. Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Uh, Brendan H. asked, who has the Civil War's coolest name? We're going to go with the Union's 20-year-old Brigadier General, whose name was... Uriah Galusha Pennypacker. Brendan also snuck in a second question. He asked, who is the Civil War's handsomest general? Benjamin Butler. No question. Please. The answer is obviously John Gibbon. <laughs> general Gibbon is a very handsome fella. Uh, okay, well, moving right along. Uh, Robert B. said, I recently finished Shiloh by Shelby Foote. Some historians don't care for his blending of fact and fiction. How do you two view historical novels? And in that same vein, Mark S. asked, What are your favorite fictional books about the Civil War? Well, we've already mentioned The Killer Angels, and since we've started the podcast, I've read a few Civil War novels by Michael Shiraz's son, Jeff. But really, since starting the podcast, we've been so relentlessly busy reading for research for the show that we haven't had much time to spare to read novels. Yeah, so um, we don't have anything against fictional books about the Civil War. We just don't have much time to read them. I'm actually a big fan, and always have been, of historical novels in general. And still, uh, today, when I do want to take my mind off the Civil War, one of my guilty pleasures is any of Bernard Cornwell's Richard Sharp or Saxon Tales books. Rona from Denmark emailed us and asked, How many foreigners participated in the war? And then he says, I'm aware that many Scandinavians participated in the war on the Union side. I actually once experienced a reenactment of the Battle of Perryville in Denmark. Apparently, a regiment of Scandinavians, mostly Norwegians though, fought for the Union at Perryville. Well, we thought that was rather interesting, a reenactment of the Battle of Perryville in, of all places, Denmark. Uh, but he's right about that regiment, which was the 15th Wisconsin. Well, anyway, um, it seems that around 450,000 foreign-born soldiers rallied to the Union cause during the Civil War, accounting for about 25% of the federal strength. And many nationalities contributed to the total, but the largest groups were the Germans and Irish, with 185,000 and 144,000, respectively. Since 85% of immigrants lived in the North, the number of foreign-born soldiers who fought for the Confederacy was naturally much smaller, but still they made up roughly 9% of the rebel army, with the Irish as the largest single contingent. Speaking of foreigners, Alex F. from New Zealand asked if we're surprised we have so many fans overseas and if we expected a podcast about the American Civil War to be so popular outside of America. Well, yes, we're surprised we have so many listeners around the world. And no, we didn't expect a podcast about the American Civil War to be so popular overseas. But that's also been one of the best things about doing the podcast. 
that is hearing from people literally all over the world who listen to it. One thing that really surprised us, but in a nice way, considering my English roots, is how many people over in the UK are interested in our Civil War. Uh, Tracy's cousin, Briny, is always trying to get us to come over and visit, and someday we really hope to be able to do that. And maybe while we're over there, we could meet up with some of our British listeners and perhaps even let you buy us a pint. Speaking of visiting places, Scott R. asks, which smaller, less well-known battlefield would you like to visit? Well, it's not a smaller or less well-known one, but at the top of our list is probably Shiloh. We've never been, but would like to visit the battlefield there. Uh, let's see. Adam contacted us via Facebook and asked, What do you think is the most strategically important but most underrated or underappreciated battle? We were split on this one. One of us said Stones River, while the other said Vicksburg. And a case can be made for either one, especially if you include Rosecrans' Tullahoma campaign in with Stones River. Uh, and then Vicksburg was overshadowed by Gettysburg. But we tried to give Stones River its due on the podcast and hope to do the same with Vicksburg when we cover it. One of our listeners in England, Matt Kay, asked... If Lee's first Maryland offensive had not ended in an inconclusive defeat to Little Mac at Antietam, would the U.K. and France have helped the Southern cause? And would this have only prolonged the war, or could it have altered the eventual result? Excellent question, Matt. And this international-slash-diplomatic aspect of the war has really interested us, and as we've looked into it, we find ourselves in agreement with those historians who think that, one, France was never going to move on this without the UK, and two, the British were never going to officially recognize the Confederacy until the rebels had already actually won their independence on the battlefield. So, although the CSA had high hopes early in the war that London and Paris would jump in and recognize their claimed independence, and expectations that that recognition would help their cause, in reality, the only way recognition was ever going to come was after the Confederates had already won decisively on the battlefield and forced Washington to give up and settle for a divided Union. And since the rebels would never win their independence on the battlefield, well, London and Paris were never going to jump in and risk a war with the United States by recognizing the CSA as an independent nation. Alan, one of our listeners in Israel, asks, Was the war really inevitable? Could the secession of Virginia be avoided? Wasn't it a mistake for Lincoln to call for 75,000 volunteers? Shouldn't he have contained the Fort Sumter crisis by withdrawing federal forces? Uh, well... Really, the first 30 or 35 episodes of the podcast are the answer to, was the war really inevitable? But the short answer is yes. By the spring of 1861, we think war was inevitable. I mean, over the years, from the very beginnings of the nation, there had been compromise after compromise regarding the spread of slavery and the protection of slavery, but that had all run its course. And with Lincoln's election, 
and the secession winter of 1861-62, when the Deep South slave states seceded from the Union and formed the Confederacy to protect slavery, even before Lincoln's inauguration, well, by that point, unless Abraham Lincoln was willing to knuckle under once he took office, then a shooting war had become inevitable. We're going to start to wrap this up, so just two more questions. Mason asked, do you prefer butter or peanut butter on waffles? Great question, Mason, but we're actually pancake people. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then Susan says, every so often you mention the music you use at the start and at the end of the episodes, but how did you decide to use that song? I think it's the perfect music for the show. Well, Susan, we agree. It is the perfect music for the show. When we first started the podcast, we knew we wanted to find just the right song to set the tone for the show, so we listened to a lot, a lot of music, with very little to go on, except the certainty that when we heard the right song, we'd know it. And when we heard Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, we knew it was the song. So we shot them an email and asked if we could use it on this Civil War podcast we were just starting up. And we're still so happy they graciously said yes and gave us permission to use it. And so with the music playing and the curtain coming down on episode number 250, there's just one more item of business to take care of, and that's to find out the winner of the Civil War Atlas. Thanks again to listener Stephen S. in Boise, Idaho for providing the atlas. And the winner is... And the winner is Rob L., uh, who sent in a question by email. So we'll email him and let him know he's won the atlas. All right. Congratulations, Rob. And thanks again to everyone who sent in questions. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time for 1863. Woohoo! 1863.